2: This is the Tom Hartman Program.
3: Well, rabbits, 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 and happy Lunar New Year. (laughs) It's also Black History Month. I'm going to talk about how right-wingers are already pre-twisting that. Also, Donald Trump pulls a Stalin in seizing our voting machines. I want to get into how the moral panic of critical race theory has morphed into a book-banning frenzy. And why a disparate group of billionaires, Republican politicians, televangelists, media outlets, and white supremacist militias have found common cause around a new and exciting moral panic. And also, I want to get into Trump's offer of pardons. Was this an attempt to basically bribe the January 6th traders to keep their mouths shut? Hey, don't tell you what's going on. Well, we'll get into that. The GOP in Georgia is executing Donald Trump's playbook to end democracy in America right now. And we've got geeky science. Same-sex penguins are succeeding as foster parents in the New York Zoo, I'll tell you all about that. So, to just kick it off here, the title for my op-ed today over at HartmanReport.com is how the moral panic of critical race theory morphed into a book banning frenzy some people are familiar with the concept of a moral panic. You know, a moral panic is like the McMartin preschool. Oh, my God, the satanic ritual abuse of children. The freak out in the Reagan administration around HIV AIDS. Oh, it's it's a gay disease. Look out for gay people. I mean, there's a, been a bunch of these over the years. Those those were from the 80s. More recently, we had, you know, the whole bathroom bill thing. Oh, my God, trans kids are going to the wrong bathroom, and we know it's a nefarious. You know, I, I, it's it's like the Republicans are constantly... Looking for these moral panics, and I think it's well back in the '80s. Tipper Gore was, uh, you know, the lyrics on these songs are going to poison our kids. The rave culture thing in the '90s. You know, this uh, British girl died of of after taking one ecstasy pill, and suddenly it was all over the place. Oh my God, ecstasy! And and turned out it was being funded by the alcohol industry. The advertising campaign to promote the moral panic against ecstasy and raves. This was in the 90s. You know, more recently we've seen Islamophobia, the moral panic around Islam right after 9-11 in the United States. In 2008, when Barack Obama became president, Donald Trump started pushing his birther conspiracy, another moral panic. Oh, my God, he's not actually a legitimate American. Um, You've got the moral panic of caravans coming to the southern border that Trump was trying to promote. And and, and as I mentioned, the the, the moral panic of bathroom hysteria. And there are others. Maybe you know of some. Share them with us. But the point of my op-ed today, while pointing these things out, and that this whole critical race theory is just another moral panic, it's just another, oh, my God, oh, my God, you know, freak out, is that everybody is focusing on the tool rather than the goal. The tool is moral panic. It's just a tool. So who are the people promoting this, and what is their goal? Nobody's talking about this in the media, and so I decided, you know, damn it, I got to, got to write this down, and that's what I did this yesterday afternoon, and it's uh, over at HartmanReport.com today. Here's how it works: Imagine you're a liberal billionaire, excuse me, a libertarian billionaire who doesn't believe in public education, and sees any kind of taxpayer-funded effort to support the general welfare or the underclass, as the uh, right-wing billionaires might refer uh, to, to all the rest of us, I guess, as an absurd waste of the tax dollars that you work so hard to earn and the government wants to come and take from you at the barrel of a gun. So you got your libertarian billionaires. Imagine that you're a leader in the Republican Party. And you're looking at the Fox News demographics. The average age of Fox News viewers is 70. And you're thinking, you know, we need to reach out to 30- and 40-year-olds because that's those are the ages when people start getting into politics. We need to get them into politics at the local level like school boards so that we can then move them into state legislatures, move them into governor's positions, move them into U.S. Congress. You know, Most politicians actually started out at the local level, county boards, school boards. School boards are one of the most common entry points into politics. So you're a Republican politician, you're trying to figure out, how do we get more young people into Republican politics? Get them on the school board. Imagine you're a multimillionaire white evangelical preacher, and you're looking for an issue that can more tightly bind you to your congregation. How can you freak them out and say, we're going to save you, I'm going to save you? Because after all, your congregation is your donors. So you become a crusader to save kids from a terrible fate. Imagine you're a white supremacist militia leader, and you want to expand your base, you want to bring in more middle-class white adults, and young people, for that matter, but you want an issue that isn't going to end you up in jail. Here we go. Or imagine you're a Republican politician who's looking at, you know, particularly in the House of Representatives, every two years there's an election, or locally, whatever, Uh, you're looking at a primary challenger from your right how do you prove your bona fides how do you prove that you you know yes I am a culture warrior too well all of all five of these groups of people the, the the libertarian billionaires the Republican Party leadership the white evangelical preachers the white supremacist militia leaders and the Republican politicians all of them benefit from this critical race theory moral panic these are the crisis actors to use alec jones's phrase and this particular moral panic has you know a deep has deep roots particularly when you look at you know the whole betsy devos thing about well this is what she said over at fox news she said because wokeness is the left's religion banning critical race theory and the 1619 project won't fix the problem The liberal education establishment will simply rename, rebrand, or repackage those insidious ideas to get around so-called bans. So the solution? Well, we have to just destroy public education. Replace them all with for-profit charter schools so somebody can make a buck off education. Come on, guys. But this, that movement which I think is the largest part, frankly, of the whole critical race theory, moral panic. It's a, it's an attempt to destroy public schools and destroy the unionized teachers who work in them. Has deep roots. In 1954, after the Brown v. Board decision of the Supreme Court said you can't have legalized segregation in your public schools anymore, entire counties shut down their schools for a year. You had this explosion of white all-white so-called christian academies all over the country you know you had places like bob jones university and then jerry falwell started liberty university and you know it was just it was all about hey the safe place for white people now that brown versus board back in the 70s when when i was working in radio i was doing news in in lansing and for for a short while i was also helping produce the chuck drake show chuck mefford was one of the owners of witl Good guy. He's passed away now, um, uh, but he did an afternoon talk show every day on the station that I was doing the news for, and I would sometimes help him produce that show. And I remember this whole all of this whole issue about why should I pay property taxes when I don't have kids anymore? My kids are all grown up. Why am I paying property tax? Or I never had kids. Why am I paying? You know, I mean, this this attack on public schools. Like I said, it started in 1954. It morphed in the 1970s. Out of this came in the 1980s, the charter school movement, with the encouragement of the Reagan administration. And then in the 90s, with the encouragement of the, of the, of the Clinton administration. And now it's a big business. In Washington, D.C., for example, there are as many charter schools, uh, you know, making profits for their investors as there are public schools. So this, you know, as I see it, every group wins in this. Every one of these five right-wing groups, they all win with this moral panic. And particularly the billionaires and the Republicans, as is usually the case. And the only losers, frankly, are black people, school kids and history and school kids don't vote. History doesn't vote. And black people, well, the Republicans are looking at that going, hey, you know, we can purge them off the voting rolls. We can force them to stand in line for 10 hours. Uh, and then when they get there to vote, we can give them provisional ballots that so we don't have to count. So they figure we got this one under control. But I'm telling you, by the month after the election in 2024, by December of 2024, and maybe by December of 2022, this moral panic will be over. It will have served its purpose. It it got Glenn Youngkin elected in Virginia as the governor. It's going to, you know, this is going to be used big time in 2022. We'll see if it still has enough juice to be used big time by Republicans in 2024. But don't worry. When this one goes away, the Republicans will come up with another one, right? They'll come up with a brand new moral panic. Who, what's it going to be? Hispanics? You know, they, they've got to have a racial moral panic. They've been going after black people for quite a while now. Is it going to be Hispanics next or Asians? How about religion? You know, they, they, They've kind of uh, done their thing on Islam. Are they going to go after like, Sikhs next, you know, Hindus? Or how about gender and sexuality? They've gone after trans kids. They went after gay men, you know, the whole AIDS things. And then they went after trans kids with a bathroom bill. What's next? Lesbians? I mean, who are they going to go after next? You can bet your bottom dollar that as I'm speaking, the younger versions in the GOP of New Gingrich and Frank Luntz are focus grouping their next moral panic as we speak in fact well when you dig into it you discover that the critical race theory moral panic took a year it was a whole year in its development and its promotion principally via fox news it's amazing we'll be back this is the tom hartman program up next black history month and donald trump trying to take down our elections pulling a stalin stick around Steve in Phoenix. Hey, Steve. Thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's up?
2: Yes. Good morning, Tom. And happy uh, Groundhog Day. Thank you. You being a Michigander and you know me being a Wisconsin you native, know, we know what all that is and oh, yeah. else been...
3: I remember it well. It was a big deal when I was a little kid, and then it kind of went away. You yeah. know? So yeah, uh, yeah, anyway, what's make up, sure Steve?
2: That, that means, you that. Know, early, early uh, spring, I guess. You yeah. Know? Anyways, getting back to this stuff here. This uh, critical race theory, this is just the 2021, 2022 version of what uh, Obama, they put out when Obama became president, what they were yelling and screaming about, which was Sharia law. Everybody was getting all lathered
3: oh, up. Oh, yeah, over that. I forgot about that. I should have included that in my op ed. I mean, forgive the well, interruption. I think, Go ahead, Steve.
2: You can do add ons here. Yeah, list, I can you know. edit it. Yeah, <laughs> I'll edit it.
3: Yeah, I
2: get, I, I've got to become a full subscriber. I'm going to do that, so i here too. <laughs> It's great stuff. Anyway, the rooms—they got to figure out one thing. The, the GOP, they only care about three things. You know, number one is lower taxes for them, the billionaires and stuff, yeah. and deregulate everything and anything they possibly can. Number three, destroy any and all safety nets that are out there for people. The other thing I'd like to just touch on real quickly is Trump was back in uh, Texas, I believe, on the weekend, and he's spouting, he, he's, he's actually confessing his lies, or is his plan to uh, overturn democracy? Yep. And I've said it before. And when does Merrick Garland stand up and take notice? Jason Sanz was on MSNBC last night, and he's worried as all heck, like I am too. And so is uh, Frank Figliuzzi, the ex FBI director. Yeah. But what do you think, Tom? When does Garland start to get going on this?
3: Well, I think Garland will step in. Keep in mind, prosecuting a former president is the ultimate political act. And, you know, there have been precedents for this in advanced democracies. You know, France has prosecuted a former president. Israel has prosecuted two former presidents and is in the process right now of prosecuting another former president, or prime minister, actually, but you get the point. But it is a a highly political move to do this. Uh, You can't disentangle it from politics. So my guess, Steve, is that the Department of Justice is waiting for the political pressure to prosecute Trump to reach the point where they can be out about it where they can come out and discuss it when right. republicans start talking about prosecuting trump and frankly i think that's what's going to come out of the january six public hearings that is going to produce a i believe i mean we'll see right but my guess is that the january six public hearings when they start having these people come in and testify in public that yes donald trump told us to do this yes donald trump advised us to do this yes donald trump's people said that donald trump wanted us to do this At that point, the pressure will be so great that I don't think he can he can pass the buck or ignore it any longer.
2: I hope you're right, Tom. My last thing I'll say here was I saw on MSNBC yesterday, I believe it was, where Susan Collins came out and said she couldn't rule out not supporting Trump in 2020.
3: I know that that was pathetic. It was just pathetic. I mean, this this is your Republican Party, you know, spines made of jelly. Steve, thanks for the call. A couple other details here that are stories that I wanted to share with you. Uh, number one, Black History Month. So, of course, white right-wing commentators across the spectrum are weighing in. Let us first stipulate that American history, at least for my lifetime, and I, I would say arguably for, I, I, with perhaps the single, singular exception of the last decade or so, American history has never been black history. It has always been white history. It's been the, you know, we, we used to make jokes in high school about, you know, uh, history is the story of dead white guys. And, <laughs> yeah, surprise, surprise. So is it, you know, inappropriate to say, hey, there's part of a history that we've been overlooking maybe we should know about, we being all of America. I mean, it's important for white people to know about black history so they understand the dynamics of, of you know, of the political tensions and and the lives of of their fellow americans and it's important for young black people black children growing up to know black history because there's a lot of nobility in black history i mean there's an extraordinary amount of nobility but it, over at the writing uh, you know this uh, uh, alerting liberal audiences to today's headlines from the right the dot com, the writing uh, over a conservative view from New Hampshire, Black History Month divides us. This is Ray Cardello. He says the idea of month-long celebrations to single one group of society has always bothered me. If I look upon blacks as equal, and I do, then why do I need a month to sing their praise? Because they've been ignored. Because they've been written out of our history. And you need to know. You need to know your own damn history. Here's this is Town Hall, and one of the huge conservative websites. The 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 header the headline. Black history as shared history. Americans are constantly bombarded with an insidious propaganda campaign against our shared history. From CRT to ripping down historical statues, our national history is being rewritten as irredeemably sinful. Uh, it is a particularly radicalized characteristic by implying that black history is somehow distinct from or separate from American history. Well, that's the thing. It has been for 240 years. It's been separate from. And then, uh, you know, uh, over a blue state conservative, a black female Supreme Court judge won't do a darn thing to help black America. It's just like it's insane. Okay, the other the other point I wanted to share with you, Donald Trump, this Donald Trump didn't just have three strategies for overturning the election. That's you know, if you read The New York Times. Uh, not just the New York, I don't mean to pick on the New York Times, but if you read the mainstream media, you kind of get this idea. Well, there were these three memos, or these three different. Attack- he actually tried to execute all three of them, to have the Pentagon seize voting machines, to have the Department of Homeland Security seize voting machines, in both cases. He actually went, or his representative went to the Pentagon and said, "Do this." went to the Department of Homeland Security and do this, and, and then went to Bill Barr and the Department of Justice and said, seize voting machines. All of this so that they could claim, oh, there's massive election fraud, and therefore we need to look at these alternative electors from these seven states that Rudy Giuliani helped organize, which will put the election you know, th- into the House of Representatives where the Republican Party, all 147 of them who voted to overturn the election, will make Donald Trump president let's just be clear about this he tried three times he didn't just think about it he actually tried and that doesn't count january 6th which was the desperation move this is mind-boggling what's going on and the department of justice needs to be all over this Tom Hartman here with you. Okay, so we've got here now Donald Trump coming out and saying that, not only confessing that he tried to overthrow the election, I mean, just just openly saying it, you know, they they say, he says the quiet part out loud. This isn't even the quiet part. This is the felony part. He just came out and said it. Yes, I tried to destroy American democracy, and by the way, it was legal. And now he's also saying, and this, this was another thing that he said on his, in his rant over the weekend, that if he gets elected in 2024, th- I, th- this is a Hail Mary, right? This, this is a desperate guy who's afraid of, of going to jail. I mean, he, he's really reaching the point now where he's looking at losing his empire, going to prison, and, and, and his kid's going to prison too, although he probably doesn't give a, a you know rat's patootie about them. But... This is truly desperation. He's telling, he told his crowd in Texas on Saturday that if he becomes elected president, he's going to pardon all the people who tried to overthrow the government along with him. Well, of course. But saying it out loud like that is, in my mind, identical to back in the day, back you know four years ago, three years ago, when he came out and said that he was going to pardon Paul Manafort. This is when Paul Manafort had been arrested. Remember that? And when Paul Manafort was going through his, his, his uh, trial and the press came to Trump and said, what do you think? And, and uh, are you going to pardon him? And Trump was like, well, I might. That's, that's called witness tampering. That is a felony in and of itself. What he was saying to Manafort was, keep your mouth shut and I'll reward you. And by the way, he did. Manafort kept his mouth shut. Trump rewarded him with a pardon. Same thing with Roger Stone. So the question, will it work this time? I don't think that, Yeah, I mean, if, if I was a January 6th uh, uh, rioter, insurrectionist, traitor, whatever you want to call him, if I was one of those people and I was looking at to go into prison for a couple of years right now, or... I could roll over on Donald Trump and his buddies and say, no, no, Roger Stone told me to do X, Y, Z. And the equation is, I'm only safe if Trump gets reelected. I'd be thinking twice. In other words, I would be skeptical that he could get reelected. And in other words, his jury tampering or his witness tampering efforts, excuse me, in my opinion, will not be effective. But nonetheless, this is witness tampering. This is a felony. Another friggin' felony for Trump. You know, we've been talking about race relations in the United States politics in the United States the intersection thereof power and how it's handled in the United States and i would argue that an awful lot of this can be tracked back to uh, to 1965 the the hart i forget the last word it was hart COLUMN bill the formal name of the law was the was something to the effect of the uh, immigration reform act of 1965 And one of its people, I think it's Hart Column. But in any case, prior to that, what we had in the United States that went back to 1921, this was first put into law in 1921. We had the first immigration law prior to 1920. Like when my grandfather came to this country from Norway in 1919, you know, it was just Ellis Island. You know, you just walk in. Well, in 21, they said, "Okay, enough. We're going to stop people from immigrating into the United States and we're going to have a legal process for this. And that law in 1921 said that if you want to come into the United States, your race is going to determine your eligibility. And at that point in time, uh, over 80%, 86% of all the, immig- all the immigrants to the United States, starting in 1921, from 1921 to 1965, during that period of time, 86% of all the immigrants into the United States were white Europeans or Canadians. And this hart mccollum Act, or whatever it was, the, 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 the Immigration Reform Act of 1965, literally changed that. It did away with the racial quotas. And so now what we're finding is that as of 2017, if my memory serves, I'm doing this, I, I read this stuff yesterday, so I'm, I'm, uh, I, I'm doing this from memory, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. Um, In 2017, it was around 14 percent, between 14 and 18 percent of all the immigrants into the United States were actually from Europe, white Europeans uh, or, or Canadians. And the result of that is that the white people in the United States are on the verge of becoming the minority, if not already the minority. And the result of that is that you've got a total white freakout going on. And we, you know we should just acknowledge this right up front. And you know in, in in Texas, what did they do when when and Texas hit this threshold? By the way, a decade ago, um, where the majority of their voters are no longer white. Um, what in te- what Texas is doing is they're they're getting rid of all the voting uh, districts, you know, re-gerrymandering them so that no black people, in particular, and Hispanic people, secondarily will represent texas in congress anymore or as few as possible i mean they 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 got two new districts over ninety percent of the growth in the population of texas was non-white people and they got two new districts and they organized them they gerrymandered them specifically to be all white all republican districts or at least all white all republican representation excuse me the districts are obviously not and now we're seeing down in georgia the same thing And this is Georgia, now the Republican Party in Georgia, executing Donald Trump's playbook to end democracy in America. I don't know what else you can call it. Justin Glau, uh, from uh, writing out of Griffin, Georgia, for uh, The Guardian, in an article that's headlined, Georgia County purges Democrats from election board and cancels Sunday voting, notes that back in May... This group of judges met in private over a two-day period to choose the fifth member of an election board in Spalding County, Georgia. Now, it should have been uncontroversial, but uh, it was apparently very controversial. The board met in secret. It's supposed to be a public meeting. They published no notes about their conversations. The only reason that this uh, position was open was because of a new law that white Republicans in the Georgia legislature had passed that made it possible. And they named a white Republican to this board, giving white Republican control to the elections board in Spalding County, Georgia, for the first time in decades. And to quote the the article in the Guardian quote, Almost immediately, that Republican, James Newland, cast the deciding vote to cancel Sunday voting, a historically heavy turnout day for black, largely Democratic voters in Spalding County. He goes, they go on to note, what happened in Spalding County is just a fragment of Republican efforts nationwide to take over the apparatus of America's elections. Now, you know, occasionally you'll hear somebody mention this, but this, this, should be, this, this should be a hair on fire moment. The Republican Party is trying to secure control of every level of government. From the White House and the Senate and the House of Representatives and the Supreme Court, they've got the Supreme Court. Uh, from the other two branches of the federal government, to every branch of state government in every state possible, to county governments, to school boards. I mean, they are really making a sincere and concerted effort with the help of a, a number of white billionaire you know, donors and funders to seize control of all of the political systems of America. Now, a lot of Americans are sitting around going, well, so what, you know, how does it matter if a Republican is running the election or a Democrat is running the election? I I still vote. Doesn't that count? Well, no. Now, historically, people running elections have not used or abused that power, but now we have laws in several states that actually give them the power to reject votes and voters. And when you have an entire country seized by one political party, and yeah, I get it. There have been times when one political party was dominant in the United States. For example, the Democratic Party after the Republican Great Depression. Basically, nobody wanted to vote for a Republican. And you can argue that in some places, and certainly it was the case, New York State is probably the best example, but in, in, uh, in a lot of places, you had political parties that were so corrupt that you had what was called machine politics that, you know, stuff was going on that didn't comport with democracy, shall we say. But now you've got over 200 pieces of legislation authorizing this in all 50 states that have been introduced and more than a half dozen have been passed. As they note here, the turn of events in Spalding County might have come as a shock to locals. A majority of Democratic election board with three black women becoming majority Republican with two white men virtually overnight. And then they note Spalding County is no outlier. In at least five other Georgia counties, local election, election authorities have been restructured in favor of Republicans. So what do you call a country where one political party is not only not only has political power like the Democrats did in the 30s and 40s? but is using that political power to change the voting systems so that they never lose power. Well, now you've got a situation like you see in Hungary, like you see in Russia, like you see in Turkey, like increasingly we're seeing in India, formerly democratic countries that have become authoritarian or oligarchic like what you see in singapore like what you see i mean, it's just all, all over the world right in fact it, probably countries run by little mini autocracies are more common than they are uncommon but we are definitely moving in that direction and this is not a healthy thing and i just I, I i wanted to flag this for you i know i've talked about it many times on this program but i don't think it can be said often enough that the republican party has made a deal with the devil They have decided that they are going to go into the business of rigging elections in this country and rigging education to ensure the continuation of their power. As I said, power rarely surrenders itself voluntarily, and corrupt power never does. And that's what we're looking at.
2: This is the Tom Hartman
3: Program. And I think that's the key, is that corrupt power never lets go. And this this has been corrupted. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees' distribution and borrowing, everything costs more. Nina in McAlpin, Florida. Hey, Nina, what's on your mind today?
1: Hi, Mr. Hartman. Thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. I am so confused about everything. Of course, everybody else is too. But, you know, I voted, I exercised my right to vote for President Obama not only once but twice. And I'm not saying that to say, oh, I'm not racist because I voted for the first African-American president. But why can't we have all these older, established, white men, women, whatever, to keep going with this cause that they're not the only intelligence ones in town? We have lots of different, diverse people that would love the opportunity but don't have the donors and money to make a change in this world and I'm so tired of people using we voted for Obama twice we're not racist because that's not even the point to me we need to give other people a chance and it just I'm so tired of white old men telling us we're not racist because we've done that you know what I'm saying am I wrong or
3: no you're absolutely right I'm, I'm I really. just don't understand
1: what else to do to make a difference in the world to to help people understand it's not that I mean these people up in Washington I say these people Republicans Democrats it's time to give everybody else a chance to to make a difference in this world because I don't think what they're doing up there is getting it I think they're as bad as the ones that that keep promoting well we you know we did it yeah. I mean, I, I was so proud of Barack Obama, and I, and I'm an old white lady. I, I'm just so tired of the establishment telling me, you know, don't use that as an excuse just because you voted for him. You're still racist, you yeah. know. Yeah.
3: Well, I don't know if you're I, racist or not, Nina. I mean, that's that's uh, something deep in all of our hearts. But, but the, the this. Um this this notion that America got past racism, which is essentially what John Roberts argued in 2013 when he struck down the Civil right, or the Voting Rights Act of 1965, um, because Barack Obama had been elected, is nuts. And when you look at what happened in America immediately after Obama was elected, you had uh, you know uh, the, that was when the white supremacist movement just exploded. And, uh, you know, I, I wrote in my book on guns about how this really got in my face that Christmas. This was like one month after Obama was elected. I was in a shooting range in Michigan with two of my brothers. And, and the guy behind the counter was raving about that N-word who's, who's going to take away all our guns. And almost all the ammunition in that, in that place was gone. I mean, there was a, a gun panic. And, uh, you know, that was white people freaked out that there's a black guy in the, in the, in the White House. And it's, it's like, you know, uh, John Roberts was just so wrong and, and, he, and taking a meat ax to the Voting Rights Act was such a terrible, either a mistake or a crime, frankly, against this country. And, and I'm with you, Nina, that we, we, need to, we need to get through this. We need to work through this and we need to, to right old wrongs. And that's what affirmative action tries to do. That's what Joe Biden is trying to do by saying he's going to put a black woman on the Supreme Court. We need to right old wrongs. That's what reparations would be about, writing old law. Sometimes you can't move forward until you clean up the stuff you're still dragging around from your past, you know? Nina, thank you very much for the call. And welcome back. Just wanted to flag for you that uh, the House and Senate are back in session this week. They've been off for a, uh, all of last week, they took off for Martin Luther King Day. Uh, you and I get one federal holiday, Congress gets a week. <laughs> They've been doing that for a long, long time. By the way, I want to register the fact that I'm not a fan of that. I think that Chuck Schumer should have kept the Senate in session and been approving judges and, and cabinet, or not cabinet, but you know, senior officials. The, the Biden administration is still not fully stocked, but nonetheless, here we are. And uh, there's a bunch of stuff that's on their agenda. Number one is going to be the uh, the situation with Russia and Ukraine. Uh, number two is going to be this uh, competitiveness in U.S. manufacturing legislation. This will probably be bipartisan, and, and it, much like the bipartisan infrastructure deal, the the, the bipartisan infrastructure deal. Uh, Joe Manchin put a provision in it that required the federal government to to take all that billion dollars, hundred uh, trillion dollars worth of money to, to, to give all of it to private for-profit corporations that were working in partnerships with government rather than to give it to government. So you can run it through government, but it's got to end up in the hands of a for-profit corporation. That's part of the bipartisan infrastructure deal that was added by Joe Manchin himself. And... You know, yeah, a bunch of good stuff is going to get got, get done, but it's going to get done at a cost to you and me of 20 or 30 or 40 percent more than it needed to be um, because of that provision. I guarantee you this we need to compete with China, we need to compete with Russia thing, uh, mostly China, is going to be the same, it'll be the same song. And you'll be hearing it from the same people. You know, there'll be Republicans who are pushing it because, hey, it's big money to big corporations. And there will be Democrats who are pushing it, particularly, you know, the ones who are really happy to take big money from big corporations. And because ultimately it's probably a good thing for America to start manufacturing chips here, for example. I mean, we can't even make our military technology without chips from China or from Taiwan at the very best. So, yeah, this is needed. And backstopping R&D, good idea. But it's going to be done in a way that's going to grease a lot of palms. That's, that's just, this is the world the Supreme Court gave us when in 2010, in the Citizens United decision, they said that corporations and billionaires are, uh, corporations are people, and corporations and billionaires can own their own politicians, and it's no longer called political bribery. It is now called free speech. So we're going to have that. And then, of course, there's, they're actually talking about Build Back Better again. Joe Manchin is saying, well, maybe I'd consider some of the provisions of Build Back Better. Uh, obviously, you know, he wants to get money into the state of West Virginia. Uh, what I'm not hearing is whether they're gonna bring up voting rights again, and that troubles me. I've, I've uh, read two or three stories about this now, you know, about the, the legislative agenda for you know, going forward. I had assumed that they were gonna break it into pieces uh, at least, you know, the John Lewis Voting Rights uh, Act, Advancement Act, or, or the um, or the other piece of legislation that went along with it, you know. The, um, and I'm just not seeing it happening, which concerns me. I, we'll find out. But anyhow, geeky science. This, I think this is absolutely fascinating, our uh, geeky science alert. The same-sex penguins in the New York Zoo have been this two male penguins who every year build a nest and like wait for the egg to arrive and the egg hasn't been arriving and so at the and by the way this is something that happens a lot in the penguin world apparently it's happened in zoos all over the world and it's and and it's been observed in the wild as well and so what they did was uh uh, the, the folks at the zookeepers is they gave these two penguins a dummy egg to see Elmer and Lima are their names, the two penguins, to see how they do with the dummy egg. And they did a great job. They sat on the egg, you know, and tried to hatch it and everything. And so last year, they or this year, they gave them an actual egg that came from another you know a, a male-female penguin couple that kept crushing their eggs. For some reason, they, they just weren't able to have their eggs survive. And so they took one of the eggs from that other couple, gave them to this gay couple, and they have now brewed, as they say, we have brooded and cared for both Elmer and Leah Lima, and they are doing a great job. And once we, they have experience doing this and continue so, uh, they will be considered to foster, foster future eggs. This uh, variety of penguins, by the way, the Humboldt penguins are considered endangered. So, you know, another reason to try and get the next group going along. Okay, so anyhow, let's uh, pick up your phone calls here. Uh, Diana in Preston, Idaho. Hey, Diana, what's on your
0: mind? Hi, Tom, thanks for taking my call. Hi start to get a little bit of PTSD from talking about my experience uh, back in the early 60s. Uh, I'm a white woman I married a black man and we had, uh, you know, family and children and we were terrorized. You know, and I contrast that, my experience then, with uh, now, you know, when I'm out with my grandchildren and there's almost no um comparison. We can go places together, you know we've lived together, we drive in a car together, no problem in in the old in the sixties and the seventies, the only thing worse than driving in in a car black was driving in a car black and white. <laughs> you couldn't do it
3: right. especially if the white was so, the woman
0: oh oh yeah oh oh I can't even talk about the experience I had. So I haven't experienced, you know, I, right now I am talking about it, but uh, when I'm with my grandchildren, I don't experience any longer the anxiety and fear that used to sometimes overtake me in the 60s and the 70s. It was horrible. And I have no fear now when I'm out with my family, but I sense that it is getting bad again. Um I just want to tell you one quick story in the 60s. My son, my first son was three years old. My daughter was three months old. We were driving across country to go to New Jersey. I I grew up in San Francisco, and we met in San Francisco, but he lived in New Jersey, or from New Jersey. So we were driving across country, and we stopped at a little restaurant, and we never got waited on, and I saw other people getting waited on, and I thought maybe she overlooked me, so I said something to the waitress, and she just looked at me and said, with her eyes, her eyes looked over there. She, she said, you see those guys? And her eyes looked over there and I turned and I saw two men standing over there. They both had shotguns, cowboy hats. They were glaring at us. She said, she just, I said, yeah. She said, leave now. Wow. And I said, right now? Cause I hadn't been served, we were hungry. I said, right now. And she said, now, now. They followed us, Tom. They followed us for at least, and this is way before cell phones or anything, you know. uh, They followed us for 40 or 50 miles, probably. And I thought we were gonna die, you know. (laughs) I thought they were gonna kill us. But We made it, we made it to New Jersey, but we had a lot of really scary experiences. And it was, you know, I used to pray sometimes. It was so bad. That I used to, you know, say, oh, I wish he was white or I wish I was black. You know, it would have been so much easier if we were the same color. Yeah. And uh, I grew up in San Francisco in a family that was not racist at all or anything. From You know, people from all over the world lived there. But we still, even in that city at that time, which was so such a cosmopolitan city and, you know, it was a city of love in the 60s, we had a hard time getting married. Finally, we found Cecil. Williams at the Glide Memorial Church, who married you know married us and my whole family came you know and because mm-hmm. nobody in my family I never grew up around racism and all the people in my family were uh, very accepting of us.
3: Yeah, remarkable story, Diana. Thank you so uh, uh, thank you so much for having the courage to share your story with us. I do appreciate it.
0: You're welcome. You're welcome, You're welcome Tom.
5: Thank you. I, I, you know,
3: hopefully you've touched some hearts here. I, that that was. And, and I guess, well, the, to the question, are things getting better, apparently? We'll be back.
4: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
3: Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Driving While Brown, Sheriff Joe Arpaio versus the Latino Resistance by Terry Green Sterling and Jude Joffe Block. And this is from the preface. On June 2017, or in June 2017, Joe Arpaio, the former sheriff of Maricopa County, Arizona, was fated in a hotel ballroom in Scottsdale in his 85th birthday, the mostly white and elderly guests sipped drinks from the cash bar and bid on the raffle price, a gun that shot pepper gel, flares, and rubber bullets. A birthday cake decorated with chocolate badges sat on one table. A slotted cardboard box called a wishing well perched on another. Guests were encouraged to deposit a donation into the wishing well to help pay the legal bills of the man once known as America's toughest sheriff, who would soon go on trial for criminal contempt of court. Arpaio had violated a judge's order to stop arresting unauthorized immigrants who had committed no crimes and turning them over for deportation. We attended Arpaio's birthday fundraiser as journalists researching this book. We sat with several guests at a round table with a red, white, and blue Fourth of July themed centerpiece. One woman with gray hair and blue eyes glared at us as though we couldn't be trusted. She told us she had picked corn as a teenager in the Midwest. Now, she said unauthorized immigrants had taken those corn picking jobs from Americans. She told us she knew also, on good authority, that unauthorized immigrants stole videos from video stores. The solution was to throw illegals out of the country, which is why she supported Joe Arpaio. Arpaio, a slightly hunched, bespeckled man dressed in a blazer and slacks, and his wife, Ava, wearing a black dress and flats, stood near the birthday cake. He whacked out the candle flames with a knife, like Zorro, and then he blew them out. At the time, President Donald Trump had been in office for six months. As usual, Arpaio told the crowd he was an early, avid supporter of Trump's candidacy. Thus branding himself as a crucial player in the ascendancy of the far right wing of the Republican Party and the Trump presidency. He noted too that both he and Trump were under attack. He'd become convinced that he and Trump were both victims of a conspiratorial liberal news media and shadowy Obama holdovers in the federal government. Arpaio singled us out, as he often did when we attended his events and press conferences, as journalists writing a hit piece book about him. I've gotta be careful, he said, pointing at us, They are hoping I get convicted and go to jail so they can sell more books. He was referring to his criminal trial scheduled later that month. Should a judge find Arpaio guilty, there was a remote possibility that the former sheriff might do time in a federal prison. We had no stake in the outcome of the trial and because Arpaio frequently labeled us as hostile journalists at his events, we were used to the audience reaction, glares mostly and surprised uncomfortable laughter. We understood too that Arpaio was manipulating his audience to paint himself as a victim of the news media. In fact, he craved media attention and he spent most of his career seeking it out. Privately, he was friendly with us. Over the four years we reported this book together and for several years before that, in our individual capacity as Phoenix-based journalists, Arpaio granted us interviews at a number of of places, in his home, in his office, in his 10th city jail, before and after press conferences, in airports and on airplanes, at a film festival, at election night parties, and throughout the 2016 Republican National Convention. People often asked us how we'd gotten so much access to such a well-known polarizing figure in American politics. The answer was simple. We asked for interviews and we showed up at events. Our goal was to understand Arpaio's motivations and include his perspective. We wanted to tell his side of the story in connection with the central narrative in this book his immigration crackdowns as Maricopa County Sheriff. We also sought his reactions to the Latino-led movement that was determined to bring him down. Arpaio was eager to share his talking points. We understood he did not always tell us the truth. We confronted him with his inconsistencies. We also confronted him with the misery and terror he'd caused immigrant families and American citizens of Latino descent. His agency had engaged in systemic racial profiling, and had enabled the deportation of tens of thousands of immigrants, many permanently. When asked about this, he shifted the blame to the immigrants themselves for being in this country without papers. This book is not a biography of Joe Arpaio. Instead, it is a story of the human consequences of his relentless immigration enforcement in Maricopa County. It tells the story of two movements on opposite sides of the immigration divide. It is about a coalition of Maricopa County residents, many of them Americans of Mexican descent or born in Mexico, who rose up against Arpaio. They include Lydia Gozman, Carlos Garcia, Alfredo Gutierrez, Danny Ortega, Mary Rose Wilcox, and Sal Reza. It's also about Arpaio himself, along with his political allies, Russell Pierce and Andrew Thomas, his deputies and staffers, and loyal supporters like Catherine Kober and, and Barb Heller, who felt that the United States was threatened by unauthorized immigrants and were comforted by the sheriff's crackdowns. As the bitter immigration divide pioneered in Arizona spreads, and as the country grapples with discriminatory policing against communities of color, this book is about what Arizona can teach the rest of the nation. The book Driving While Brown by Sterling and Joffe Block. Let's pick up your phone calls. A bunch of you have been waiting for quite a while here to get on. John in West Allis, Wisconsin. Hey, John, thanks for holding. What's on your mind today?
4: Well, since Manchin and Cinema voted uh, against the Freedom to Vote Act, essentially, this is what I foresee happening unless the, and this comes up again, at least in part, the Republicans are going to gerrymander, voter suppress, and, and even cheat in other ways their way into a huge control over the House. They'll take over the House. They will then throw all of the Democrats off of committees. As in Wisconsin, they'll disband the uh, committee looking into January 6th. They'll then vote to not just suppress but destroy evidence, uh, just like they did in Wisconsin when Walker cheated his way to the governorship. They uh, will also probably impeach Biden in retribution and— my guess is that when that happens, unless we get three or four new Democratic senators to replace Republicans, Manchin and Cinema will switch over to the Republicans, and McConnell will then take up his promise to block every single federal judicial candidate that uh, Biden proposes. Yeah. This is what I see happening. We will lose our democracy.
3: If the scenario that you outlined, John, and I've pointed to it myself for the last Five years. I, I wrote a book about it. In fact, if that scenario comes true, I agree with you. That's 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 it. At least over the short term, American democracy is in a terrible, terrible situation. And I hope you're wrong, but uh, I, I this is obviously what they're planning. And I think we need to we need to we need to be fighting back. And yeah. I am very concerned that we're not fighting as hard as we should. Gary in Alpharetta, Georgia. Hey, Gary, what's on your mind?
6: Hello, Mr. Tom Hartman, first-time caller.
3: Hey, Gary. Greed has no heart. What's up?
6: Greed has no heart ever. In the spirit of Franklin, Dunn, I often wonder. Just seeing, just before I call, here comes Tom Hartman with FDR. And in the spirit of FDR, I have to say this is what we need again. We we need a, a democratic leader to run for president who energizes the base, energizes America, and and just hits these people, uh, you know, not physically. Right in, the, right
3: in the mouth. Yeah. Well, we had and a couple of people understood. like that in the, in, the, in the presidential primary, you know, uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. And I, I guess the good news is that, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, they would have been in the Dennis Kucinich category, you know, oh, weird little fringe characters, you know, nice to put on TV for entertainment, but they really don't have anything serious to do with governing. Now, you know, genuine progressives who are, you know, trying to work toward a, a pluralistic and multiracial democracy are getting up there. And uh, in, in the House of Representatives, Alexandria castillo cortez and Cory Bush. And, right. I mean, you got a bunch of uh, really good progressives in both the House and Senate now who actually have power. Um, so but, I don't think right. we're, I, I, you know, if we go down, uh, we're going to go down fighting. But what's your point, but, Gary?
6: Right. I've called for another reason also, though. We've had a sea change in our culture. You know, all these points that we're making, I, I listen with interest to your show and other programs and other points of view, and they're all relatively right on spot. But what bothers me is sometimes we're all over the map. And if I was a leader, if I had the chance, I would prioritize our goals. And the number one goal is this. The so we'll, rule, and this is what you're talking about, and I'm raising my voice, I know. I wish me and you were a little younger. Maybe we ought to run for office. Get
3: off. to the point, Gary. <laughs> my point is the rule of law. There you go. Okay, I'm with you. I'm I'm with you. And and uh, the rule it, of law. Yeah. Okay. It's yeah. more important than money. Yeah. No, I'm I'm with you, Gary. Very well said. Thank you. Neil in Greenville, South
5: Carolina. Hey, Neil. What's up? Tom, thank you for taking my call. Are you able to hear me? Okay. Yes, sir. Yeah, so Tom, what I wanted to talk about was really the necessity to teach not critical race theory, not black history, but American history. Amen. And, and I feel that the great resistance to that is that America has always resisted the truth. This is not new. We've always resisted the truth. So when you sit down for Thanksgiving, are you going to have a discussion about the Trail of Tears at your Thanksgiving dinner, right. hell no, because if you do, you're then talking about the truth of America yep. when we start talking about how wealth was built, if you give me ten people who I don't have to pay and they go to work for me on land that I took, hell I could be wealthy too yeah. It's not it's not that difficult. Yep. So I, I think the challenge is, if we go back, and I'm reading three books right now. I'm reading The the, the 1619 Project, which is mm-hmm. a great book. That's brilliant. I've also read a great book called Empire of Illusion. It's the end of literacy and the triumph of spectacle. Mm-hmm. And it's by a gentleman by the name of Chris Hedges. And then the third one is What Orwell Didn't Know, Propaganda and the New Phase of American Politics. And so I think if if we start to lean toward truth, then what you do is you undo almost everything that capitalism is based upon. Well, a lot of
3: these are lies that certainly help capitalism work. I mean, you know, slavery is the ultimate expression of capitalism, I would argue um hmm. interesting point Neil let, let me chew on that one great book list I've read two of the three <laughs> the great book list Neil thank you very much you, yeah and thank you thank for, you sir you're welcome and thank you for listening Sirius XM we'll be back tomorrow same time same place in the meantime don't forget that democracy is not a spectator sport it never was never will be no it never was intended to be that's the whole thing about demos right the people so get out there get at you're the people. You are one of the people. So get out there and get active tag. You're it. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great afternoon. And be good to yourself and the people around you. Stay safe. We just, uh, my sense is we don't have a whole lot longer to be all freaked out about this uh, pandemic. Hopefully. We'll see you tomorrow.
2: You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.